When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everyone. If you've got a Bible, please do turn to the passage that was read to us in Mark chapter 10. And I want to highlight the last verse, uh, verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray and then we'll tuck in. Lord, thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you are a revealing God. And we pray now by your spirit and through your word, you would reveal more of Jesus to us. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series this evening looking at apparent paradoxes in the person and work of Jesus. And this afternoon, I want us to think about the power and the weakness of Christ. Now, anyone who's read any of the Marvel or DC comics or watched any of the movie spin-offs will know that all superheroes have remarkable powers, but they also have somewhat unusual weaknesses. A few, for example, Banshee uh, is very susceptible to a sore throat, as I am this afternoon. Gladiator suffers from low self-esteem. The Flash, his uh, weakness is actually running too fast. Daredevil's weakness is noise pollution. Famously, Superman's is kryptonite. And Green Lantern's weakness is the color yellow. And it's interesting, I actually looked at a list of about 50 superheroes this week. And every one of them has got some rather weird weakness. I've been thinking about that this week. Why are they depicted in that way? Well, I think that besides adding a certain risk to their ability to save the world, it also gives us an ability perhaps to identify with these characters. Jesus came to save the world. And he saves the world by not saving himself. Jesus' weakness is his love. And in love, he makes himself weak, like those he came to save, because only in becoming weak is his power able to save us. Jesus has been described as the absolute paradox. Someone else described him as the coincidence of opposites. And that these two aspects of his being with us strain our comprehension. On the one hand, he is absolute almighty God. And on the other, 
he is just like us, human and weak and vulnerable and susceptible to the pressures and exigencies of life. This seeming paradox has strained Christians for two millennia. And often we find that we identify with one um, nature over the other. Some preferring to identify and look to the divinity and glory and majesty and authority and power of Jesus. And others identify more with his humanity and his meekness and his weakness and so on. But the Bible doesn't permit this sort of bifurcation, this split between the two. Jesus, and it stretches our understanding because he is unique in it, is one person, but with two natures. At one and at the same time, the high king of heaven and also the humble carpenter from Nazareth. In our passage, we've got these two aspects just buttressing up against each other. The, James and John recognize that Jesus is one who has come from glory and will return to glory. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the, the anointed one of God. And they say, can we sit with you in your glory? Glory is a, a word that accompanies divinity and surrounds him. And immediately Jesus responds by saying, can you be baptized with the baptism? I am about to be baptized. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? He's talking about suffering. He's talking about the cross. Glory on the one hand, the cross and suffering on the other, divinity and humanity. And we see this throughout the life of Jesus and his ministry, the two going together, this paradox of both power and weakness. We see this paradox of power and weakness in Jesus' birth. Verse 45 says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man is an interesting title, but it's one that Jesus actually took to himself and used to describe and to define himself, a commentary on himself, more than any other title. He uses it about 80 times in the Gospels. And that title comes from the Old Testament. And there in the Old Testament, it represents two categories. First, it represents humanity, humankind. But invariably, when it's used, we find it used in the Psalms and elsewhere, it represents kind of mankind in their weakness. The other time we see this word used is to describe this figure who comes from God and comes on the clouds and comes surrounded in glory and comes to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth and comes to be worshipped and glorified by all the nations. We have these two things in this title, the Son of Man, one just like us and one just like God with us. I think this paradoxical use comes together when Jesus employs this title. A paradox of both power and weakness, 
of divinity and humanity. And we read, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served. He came. Jesus had dwelt in unapproachable light, in divine glory from all eternity. And myriads of angels on angels waited on him and worshipped him. Universe on universe was created by his will, at his command, through his design, by his decree. He ordained and ordered them as they were, every star outshining and singing to his praise and glory. And then two millennia ago, in a backwater in the Roman Empire, amongst a people conquered and oppressed, to a daughter, a descendant of David, God's spirit remarkably, uniquely, miraculously alights and unites with human blood in virgin's womb and a zygote, a mass of cells is formed and embedded in that womb and God is co-joined with humankind. It stretches our imagination, it stretches our conception, it strains our language but scripture presents it to us. This is the miracle of Christmas. And Christmas is not just for Christmas. That's why it's a bit of a Christmas sermon in advance. God wed with humanity in a virgin's womb. And we see this staggering condescension of God stooping low, this staggering contraction of God who fills the universes somehow filling a womb and the high king of heaven laid low wrapped in swaddling in a feeding trough there meek and weak it's an amazing thing it's an extraordinary thing Charles Wesley wrote the hymn in which he talked about God contracted to a span the width of a hand he says incomprehensibly man and here we have Deus intra machina. We have God inside the machine, as it were. God with us, God like us, God one of us. And the omnipotent becomes dependent. It's an extraordinary thing. The breath of life takes a breath. God takes his first steps. And God is taught his first words. And God is fed at the breast. What an extraordinary thing. That's a lot to build into that word for the Son of Man came. But there was a time before time when he was from all eternity existing, the Son of God. And the Son of God came as amongst us as the Son of Man. In C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the children find a stable. And uh, it's like a TARDIS. You know, Doctor Who's TARDIS, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the out. And Queen Lucy says, in our world too, a stable once held something that was bigger than the whole world. The Son of Man came. And we see this paradox, secondly, of power and weakness in the life of Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served, even though angels forever had served him, he came not to be served, but to serve. It took infinite power for 
the almighty God to become a weaned child. And yet this incarnation, this taking flesh, this humble love, it's the opposite of a power grab. Scripture talks about him laying aside that power, in a sense, not exercising, not operating fully in that divinity. The Lord doesn't come to lord it over us, but his power accompanying him is placed at our service. And we see this power operative throughout the ministry of Jesus, a power that is not self-seeking, that's not grasping at power, a power that is used to bless and enable others to flourish. We see it with the, the power of his truth and his insight and his wisdom and his words that address the very core of our being and our longing and that just seek to put our understanding right. He has power that can work extraordinary miracles, you know, he turns a packed lunch in, of a little boy into a meal that'll feed 5,000. He he's, sees our need and he wants to satisfy us. He uses his power. His power to command the wind and the waves. When he's there in the boat and the storm is raging, he's able to command the nature with a word, be still. And maybe that storm's raging in our life or in your life, in your situation, in your family at the moment. He's the one in power who can speak a word and bring peace. Power to inspire followers from all these disparate groups, often groups that were against each other, whether it was bankers or fishermen or terrorists. They just saw and heard and understood that he was the one they'd been looking for all their life and they found their destiny in following him. He had power to declare forgiveness and cleansing and to remove with a word and a touch the shame that accompanied people. And he had power to raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. And his power is in no way diminished. And this power is still operative and it's still effective in our world today by his spirit through the church. Power to declare sins forgiven and his power is at work establishing his rule and reign on earth beginning with as small as a mustard seed finally filling the whole earth with his glory. Martin Luther King described power in this way. He said, power is the ability to achieve purpose and effect change. I don't know if he borrowed that from physics, but it sounds like a physics sort of statement. But power is the ability to achieve purpose and effect change. And Jesus came from all eternity, from all glory, the Son of God, and he becomes the Son of Man, and he walks with us, and he brings the power of God to us and through his weakness makes it available and brings about change in our lives and in our world. Power purposed for good. But we see his power flowing through his weakness and we see the bread of life knowing what it is to be hungry, to go without food, 
we see Jesus knowing what it is to be tempted in all ways common to man, the scriptures tell us. Tempted and tried and tested just like us. We can never say Jesus doesn't understand. Jesus knew what it was to weep and offer up cries and prayers. You know, I love the story in John 11 when he goes to his friend Lazarus who's been dead for four days. And we're told Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And then, that's his humanity, identifying with us, feeling this loss of his friend. And then Jesus wowed and says, Lazarus, come on out. And there we see this paradox, humanity and divinity, humanity and power. Jesus knew what it was to be weary and grow tired. He knew what it was to be lonely. He knew what it was to experience anxiety with his temples pulsating with fear so that blood vessels broke through. Jesus knew all this in his life amongst us as one who serves, abandoned in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by his friends, let down by those just when he needed them most and then arrested and humiliated and bound and tried and struck and then sent off and tried again and then dressed up and mocked and then tried again and then beaten and then forced to carry his cross and then crucified for us. Power and glory. And we see this all the way through his ministry. And then finally we see this paradox of power and weakness in his death. The Son of Man, Jesus says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate service, the ultimate demonstration of his divine power was not taking our humanity but it was taking our place and giving his life in order to give us life. And so at the cross we see the light of the world shrouded in darkness and the life of the world snuffed out. And as the old song says, the hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. We see the suffering of God and the sinless one suffers for the sins of the world. And the eternal God in Christ Jesus dies. The immortal dies. Why is that? Well, Jesus himself tells us. He's doing it. He's doing it of his own freedom, will, and volition. He came to give his life. He has power to lay down his life. He has power to take up his life and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the word Jesus chose. A ransom. A ransom's a payment to get you out of debt, to get you free. And Jesus is that ransom. He is the one who is, in that sense, a substitute and a sacrifice for us, a satisfaction for us. And this is the great mystery, the greatest mystery and paradox that when Jesus is at his weak, weakest, he's actually at his most powerful. And the most powerful event 
takes place when he is there crucified and hanging on the gibbet. And as he takes on himself the sins of the world, he's taking away the sins of the world. And as he himself experiences, in some sense, separation from his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is happening so that we can be reconciled to God the Father, and as he soaks up all the venom of the demonic, so he is disarming our ancient foe. And as he goes down into shale, into hell, he sets the captives free. It's a mystery. Words fail us. Our brains fail us, at least mine does. But I know this is how God worked in his economy, in this paradox at the cross. Recently, I've been going through a difficult time for several reasons, and um, I found myself reading a German theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, I've read him for years, but I've never really liked him, I've got to be honest. I've never really got on with him. And I've read him because I felt I ought to, and other people liked him. But... um, He was a remarkable man, he was a remarkable scholar, but he opposed Hitler, and in 44 he got arrested, 1944, and um, eventually one month before the end of World War II, by the direct decree of and orders of Hitler, he was executed. And uh, I've been reading him again, these letters that he wrote from prison, letters and papers from jail. And... uh, He was confronted by the might of Nazism and its claim to, you know, be the superman or ubermensch rising up. But he put his hope not in the power of the Allies against the Axis or in the invention of an atomic bomb or whatever. He put his hope in the suffering God. And I've really warmed to him because he spoke to me in my own situation from his much more terrible one. He says this, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world and that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible directs us to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. And it's the suffering God that seems like a contradiction in terms. The suffering God, the crucified God, the Son of God who becomes the Son of Man and dies for the sins of man. It is there at that place of apparent weakness that God's power breaks through and can transform our life. I need to finish. What? What does this God of power and weakness mean for us? Well, I've always said I I personally took great encouragement lately from this understanding. But, you know, Tyler Statton, who's a good Bible teacher from Bridgetown Church in America, he says, God has gone to great lengths to get close to you. That's what this is all about. God going to great lengths to get close to us. God in all his glory and majesty and power and divinity wanting to get close to us. 
so he becomes one of us, so he can draw near to us. He's not a distant God, not an absent God, he's not an indifferent God, he's not a detached God. He is a God who wants to come near and then to transform our existence and be with us forever. He's not a God of apathy towards us, he's a God of empathy. He's there in the mix. I spoke to a chap recently, about a week ago, and he'd been really struggling with his thought life, with thoughts and troubles in his mind. And uh, I rather shocked him. I said, I don't think you've thought anything Jesus didn't have in his head. He said, what? I said, well, the Bible says that he's a great high priest like us. And he's been tempted in all ways just like us. He knows what we're like. He knows of what we're made. He remembers that we're dust, as the psalm used at funerals says, because he'd been there. And he said, he's had all of that. And I said, so Jesus can identify with you in this and you can identify with him. Don't pull yourself away from him. Push closer to him because he knows. But more than that, he's also the God of power whose power can break into your life and bring wholeness and healing. Seeing someone's need, yet not having power to help, isn't much good. It's a, it's a little bit better, but not much, than being able to help, but not really seeing, and therefore not helping. But what we see in this paradox of Jesus, of weakness and strength, of strength and weakness, is one who sees, one who understands, one who has entered into it, who has drank the earthly cup to its lees, and one who's made his power available to us. Jesus is power and weakness, and he releases his power through his weakness, and that power comes to our weakness. And now we're coming to the Lord's table, and we see the perfect illustration of this, the perfect example, the gift of it to us, as we take bread, the symbol of Christ's body broken, and drink wine, his blood poured out, as we take those things to our lips and kiss the Son of Man and kiss the Son of God. As we do that today, let us ask God, wherever we need it in our life, and our situation, the burdens that are on our hearts, those places of weakness or even darkness, let us ask that his power will come to us. Amen.